Well, good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open, open them up to the book of Matthew. Matthew, around the 21st chapter, that's where we will be um, beginning our study from this morning. As you're turning your Bibles there and preparing your, your minds for, for the, uh, spending this time in God's Word and, and looking to His, His Bible, or His, His Word for our truth and for our path in our lives, I want to stop for just a moment and say welcome. Say so, so encouraging for me to see each and every one of you here, especially our visitor. Uh, that is just always uplifting, always picks me up when we have those visiting with us. And we are so thankful that you have chosen to be here. We are going to be talking a little bit this morning about s- some challenges that the church often faces. Uh, challenges that are, that are made evident in any age. Uh, so this is not a problem that is just... Um, just common to us. It's a problem that the church has faced and has, has had to deal with throughout its history. And I've talked to you before about the differences in the phrases such as the church universal and the church uh, local. And so we're not going to, to go all the way through that, but just to, to brush up on it a little bit, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus says to Peter in verse 18, that upon this rock I will build my church. And it is that church that he talks about there. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That church is what we were talking about when we talk about the church in the universal sense. Uh, and and this, this idea that Jesus speaks of there, the church not being prevailed against, that it will stand, that it will not be shaken, that's the overarching theme of, of Jesus' message throughout the Bible, especially as we get over to the book of Revelation. This universal church, this church made up of all the saints from, from all over the world, from all time, both, both dead and both alive, it will never be destroyed. It will never, um, it will never be, uh, be overcome. And that church exists today and will continue to exist until the Lord comes again. That is the church that we are added to when we are saved. When we are added to the, to the number of the saints, we are added to that universal church. But whenever those saints, we talked about this, that this morning with our, our children. Uh, we, we asked them, what is, what is church? And then they told us in the car ride over here, they said, it's people. And they're right, that's what the church is. When those saints, those added to the Lord's body, when they gather together at any local place to do the will of the Lord and to worship Him and to serve Him, they make up a local church. This is what we see Paul writing letters to over and over again. The church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth. Certainly they were members of the universal church, but they made up a local assembly of that universal church. And it is the, Lord, uh, the local church that oftentimes bears the brunt of these challenges, these confrontations that the Lord's church can expect. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the, the parable of the tares. And in that parable, he talked about the opposition of Satan and how Satan would be sowing in uh, tares amongst the, 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 the wheat, amongst the good grain. And that, that opposition, that's part of the confrontation that the church is going to face, these attacks by Satan. Also in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, we read about Attacks from within, and, and these are foretold by Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. <clears throat> Paul says, And I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. The problem, Jesus said, was going to be from Satan. Paul compounded that problem, said the problem is going to also come from within. And in, in apostasy, in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, Peter talked about the problem was going to be the church turning away from God. Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 4, uh, people following after, following after their own will instead of the will of the Lord. And so the, the challenges faced by the church are, are very, very real. And we need to do, do a, a good job of familiarizing ourselves with these challenges. So when we see them approaching, when we see them... Um, rearing their ugly head, we can be prepared to try and come to, to, to battle against these challenges. And again, the church is the universal, that spiritual entity. It is preserved by Jesus. But the church local 
is what is subject to many of these threats, these threats that exist. So how can the church local, how can, how can we, as the Lake Street Church of Christ, how can we stand strong and how can we be firm in the service of the Lord? And I believe the key in understanding that question and the key in answering that question has to inevitably always begin from the same place, and that is with a proper respect of authority. How shall we determine what is right and what is wrong? How shall we determine what is good and what is evil? When we come to the realization um, that, that we, we have an, an inherent right and wrong, a good and evil, we must never allow Satan to shift our focus away from that. And that is his goal. That is his, his ploy in our lives is to take our eyes away from that truth, that there is a right and there is a wrong. <clears throat> and what shall be our authority? When it comes to these things, when it comes to determining what is right and what is wrong, when it comes to determining what is good and what is bad, what's going to be our authority in these in this matters of religion? Uh, is it a particular doctrine? Is it a particular practice? Is it from heaven or from men? That's the question that Jesus asks in Matthew chapter 21. That's the basis for, for our thoughts this morning. Matthew chapter 21 in verses 23 through 25, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John from what, uh, was from what source, from heaven or from men? Using the proper authority in matters of religion, most challenges confronting the church can very easily be overcome if we keep our focus on the proper authority. So what is the proper authority in religion? Well, to begin with, that, with answering that question, let's consider what many churches today consider uh, or accept as authority. Many places in the, uh, in the world today accept things such as the Old Testament as their authority. Uh, from the beginning of the church, many appealed to this. If you look over in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, you might uh, recall this is uh, the section of Acts where, where there was this, this council called because there were some who were claiming that, that these Gentile Christians were, were coming to Christ and they needed to be circumcised. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension uh, and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others uh, of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Certainly, certainly nothing that the Bible teaches, nothing that Jesus ever spoke of, nothing that his apostles ever spoke of, teaches that the Old Testament is of, of no regard. Certainly that nothing that they ever said teaches that the Old Testament is a waste of time. Certainly nothing they said that the Old Testament is a, has no, no value to us whatsoever. The truth is the Old Testament certainly has its place. And when properly handled, the Old Testament is able to, to provide admonition, as Romans 15 verse 4 says. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, it says that the Old Testament was recorded so that we would have a warning of how we were supposed to live. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 through 17 informs us that it is inspired by God. This is not meaningless words. In fact, we've, we've discussed and we've, we've studied how we received that, that body of work in the Old Testament. But the fact is, the Old Testament still can be misused. And to authorize things that are no longer required, turn over to Galatians chapter 5. We'll see another example of this being done. Galatians chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 1 through 4. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision... 
Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. And Paul warns here that if you, if you place yourself back under the bonds of the old law, when he talks about being circumcised, he is not talking necessarily about, about the act of circumcision in and of itself. He's talking about the, the effort to be back under the, the bonds of that old law. And he says, when, and he warns, when you do that, when you place yourself back under the old law, you are, you are not just placing yourself under the entire law, that you must keep all of it. You are separating yourself, severing, alienating yourself from Christ. And so the Old Testament, while very important, is not something that we must assume is completely uh, the, the source of all of our authorization for authority in today's world. Likewise, there's another place that sometimes churches turn to uh, that is se- seemingly just as, uh, just as authoritative in many people's eyes, and that is the traditions of men. In Mark chapter 7, <clears throat> Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, we read something about traditions, and we need to understand that this was a very common thing to the Jews. This was a very common practice. Mark chapter 7, 1 through 5, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and of pitchers and copper pots. This was a tradition that the elders had passed down to the Jews. This was that time of the of, of uh, rabbis that were passing on their teachings that went... Um, not necessarily from God's word, but just some, you know, maybe an a, uh, interpretation that they had had of something. But they were passing along their teachings, their thoughts, their traditions. And these things are being held to very closely. And the fact is, traditions in and of themselves are not wrong. Traditions of God are, are very right. Over in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2 Paul says that we need to hold to certain traditions. He says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So traditions of God are absolutely a great thing to hold to. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Paul again stresses the importance of holding to these teachings, which whether they were written or were spoken were passed down by the apostles. But when it comes to just the traditions of men, Jesus condemned it. And over in Mark chapter 7, just finishing up after what we just read, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 6 this time, whenever these, <clears throat> whenever these men came to Jesus and they were questioning him, why do you not hold to these traditions that we have? Why are your, your uh, followers eating with unwashed hands? In verse 6, he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And then verses 8 through 13, after saying that they taught uh, uh, what they taught, they taught as if it was the doctrine of God. He says that they displace God's commands for the, for, for the words of men. Saying, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. For, God, uh, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have, I would help you as, uh, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. These traditions of men, Jesus said, were, were not acceptable as a place of authorization for what you do, especially because they displaced the commands of God. They, do, they were directly against what God has commanded. And so these uninspired traditions cannot be equated and cannot replace the Word of God. 
Another place that sometimes we see churches accepting their authority from today are modern day prophets. A prophet is simply one who stands as the mouthpiece of God. That was the, the, the title of prophet given throughout the Bible. When you had a prophet, it was someone coming, speaking the word of God to the people. A lot of times that contained a, a predictive element, but it always contained the word of God being spoke to the people. <clears throat> In Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 verse 20, we, we see that throughout the history of the church, this has been a problem. That, the, that these modern day prophets came and they spoke a message that people took as authoritative, but it was not. And in Revelation 2, verse 20, <clears throat> we read, But I have this against you. This is to the church at Thyatira. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There are many today who claim to have a message from God, who speak from, from uh, either their, their own understanding that they say has been divinely touched, who speak from a, uh, some sort of miraculous message that was given to them, or speak for God himself, such as, as the Pope. The, the Pope uh, claims to be in place of or, or to standing in, in the uh, spot of God. Uh, these people come and they say they have divine understandings of God's word. Christ and his apostles warned against listening to such false prophets. In Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 verse 15. Christ said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus calls them wolves here in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. Peter's going to say that they are incredibly destructive. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John says there's going to not be a, this is not going to be a small problem. This is not going to be a, a little instance here, a little instance there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John says the, that they are going to be many in number. Saying, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so how do we do that? How do we know if Jesus says you've got to beware of false prophets because they look like sheep. They look like people who are following God, but they are wolves. And Peter says they are destructive. And John says they are many. Well, how do we, how do we find them out? The Bible tells us, the Old Testament gives us two ways to test a prophet. One is that if their predictions, uh, if their prophecy contains a prediction, and that prediction does not come to pass. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 20. We can, we can learn from the warnings that are given here in verse 20, which says, But the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. This prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So the message that, that God gave through Moses to the children of Israel is saying, when there are prophets that arise, and there are going to be prophets that arise, and they speak falsely, you can know it is not from me if it doesn't come true. If it contains, contains some sort of predictive element and that predictive element does not come true, you can know that I am not the one that sent them. You can know that they are a false prophet. Likewise, Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 gives another, another test. It says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer or of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. You shall keep His commandments, listening to His voice, serve Him and cling to Him. 
But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. What was Moses teaching them here? He was saying when people come and they bring this prophecy and maybe they even contain some sort of predictive element and that predictive element comes true. They say such and such is going to happen and it happens. And you say, well, they must be a prophet of God. What do they have to say? And then they tell you something that contradicts God's law. Here, they tell you to turn away from God and let's go serve other gods. These gods that you do not know. If they, they tell you to do something that is in direct defiance to God's word, you can know that is not a prophet of God. That is someone bringing a message that is contradictory. That is someone not to be heeded. That is someone even to be avoided. Since the very beginning, since the first century A.D., uh, the beginning of the church, all prophets, all prophets that have come and claimed to bring some new message, they have failed either one or both of these tests. Another place where churches sometimes get their authority is through majority rule. It's a very dangerous place to get our authority from. But many people, many churches, they, 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 they build councils and they decide doctrine. They decide practice based upon the majority rule. And Jesus warned of the danger of following the majority in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, verse 13 through 14, listen to what Jesus says talking about the, the way to heaven. Matthew 7, verse 13, he says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The majority will enter through that wide and, 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 and increasingly broad uh, gate. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. When we consider majority, majority rule as a place of authorization for choosing what is right or what is wrong. Maybe we need to think back to things such as Noah and the flood. If we had sided with the majority in that day, we talked about it a little bit in, our, in the Lord's Supper talk, possibly over a billion people that decided, no, the ark is not where I need to be. No, Noah is not the man we need to listen to. If we decided to live or to respond and accept the authority of the majority, where would we be today? Or what about in Joshua's day, when the majority said, we can't take the land, and yet the two, Joshua and Caleb, said, absolutely, we can take the land. Because God has said He's already given it to us. It already belongs to us. We just have to go in and take it. If we had went with the majority in that day, where would we have ended up? Would we have ever seen the promised land? No, we would have died in the wilderness. Following the majority is never a good guide for authority in religion. Popular choice does not make the correct choice. Another place is conscience. There's a, a, a little phrase I know we're all probably aware of, let your conscience be your guide. Disney did such a great job pushing that out into the minds of, of all of us as we were, we were young ones. Jiminy Cricket on, our, on your shoulder saying, just, just follow your conscience. That's going to lead you down the right path. But our conscience cannot always be reliable. To understand this, we need to look no farther than the Apostle Paul. Over in Acts chapter 23, listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 23 and in verse 1. Paul looked intently at the council, uh, excuse me, Paul looking intently at the council said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now what had Paul's life uh, included up to that day? Certainly included uh, the, the good things he had done. He had, he had uh, went to, he had followed the, the, the message of the, the voice that he heard in the wilderness and the, the light that he saw. He, he had followed that message. He had went and he had obeyed the Lord. He had started serving the Lord. Certainly he had done many good things. His conscience had a, a good reason to be good. But included in that were Paul's efforts to destroy the way of the, the Lord. To, to undermine Christ's uh, death, to, to take those who followed him and drag them off, to, to take them to prison, to, to separate families, to, to breathe hate upon the followers of Christ. But yet Paul stands here before them and says, 
my conscience was good. I never violated my conscience because in those days my conscience told me these things are right. Serving our conscience as our guide always comes with great risks. Acts chapter 26, Paul goes on to talk about all these things that he did persecuting Christ in verses 9 through 11. It's been said that the conscience is like a clock. And it only works properly if it is set properly. We can set that clock to whatever time we want to. Say, Kyle, it's time to sit down and be quiet. You've been up there too long. But the clock only works properly if we set set it properly. Our conscience is never going to be a reliable guide in our matters of religion because our conscience is subjective. We also have human wisdom as a guide for many, as an authority. Many feel that though that through their own wisdom they can determine things that are right and things that are wrong. But God's thoughts and God's ways are always higher than our thoughts and our ways. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9, he says, your thoughts and your ways, they're not mine. They're not like mine. They are on such a lower level. My thoughts and my ways are so much higher than yours. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that when God says those things, he says those things for our benefit, for us to learn that we can't rely upon our own wisdom, but we must turn to that wisdom that comes from him. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 18 through 29. Paul says here, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the foolish, uh, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world, came, uh, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we pe- preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. We read these passages, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 29. Do we understand what Paul is saying? He is saying that God specifically purposely has chosen to save man in a manner that is designed on purpose to confuse those who depend solely upon human wisdom. Those who depend solely upon their own ability to discern that which is right and wrong. Those who depend solely upon their own ability to choose that which is good and better or worse. God has chosen to save men in a way that is purposely designed to confuse them. Because for us to know God's will is necessary for us to see Him, to be re- for Him to be revealed to us. So 1 Corinthians 2, 9-12 through 12 goes on to tell us, <clears throat> starting in verse 8, says, "...the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for they have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, for which have not, uh, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those... Who love him. It was God's will for us to understand him and for him and his wisdom to be revealed to us. And this he has done through his spirit inspired apostles, who in turn, they shared it to us uh, in their writings. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he talks about his revelation of the mystery that is Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before, in brief. That, that, that wisdom from God, that, that message that God desires for humans to know, revealed to his inspired apostles. And, and Paul says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of man, son of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Human wisdom and relying solely upon human wisdom is the exact opposite of what God desires for his people. It is his wisdom. It is relying on him and on his word revealed to us by his apostles and by his son that we are to, to, to base authority off of. And also, feelings. This is often the standard of authority for, for many people and for many churches. The, the idea of whatever feels right, that's going to be whatever is right. People who place stock in a religion that's better felt than told. People who will follow societal trends that may seem good, that may seem right. People who look to these things say, that, that's got to be the right thing to do because when I do that, I feel so amazing. It makes me feel so good that that's got to be what God wants me doing. But again, the Bible declares a very real danger here in trusting in our feelings. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 28, verse 26, say, He who trusts in his own heart feels good in here. It's got to be right. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, according to the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, O Lord, I know the way of a man is not in himself. It is not in a man who walks to direct his own steps. Why? The same reason the conscience is not a good, a good source of authority. Because it is subjective. It can, be, it can be moved one way or another. It is not fixed. It is not a standard. Subjective feelings from the heart always come from man. They are not from the mind of God. Now these seven standards that we've talked about of authority and religion... The Old Testament, the traditions of men, modern day prophets, majority rule, conscience, human wisdom, feelings. It is not to say that these things serve no purpose. We saw the Old Testament certainly has a purpose. Traditions of men don't necessarily always mean they are evil. But what we need to understand are they are from men. These things do not come from heaven. They originate from human mind. And that is the main reason there's so much religious confusion in the world today. So many people who say, this is what should be done. No, this is what should be done. So many different types of, of, of denominations and of divisions. And Why? Because there's so many different people who say, this is what I think should be done. And this is what I believe should be done. And this is what I feel should be done. And there's a phrase that I don't, I don't use often because it feels crass, but it is so, so close to the truth. It says it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel, and it doesn't matter what you believe. None of that makes authority. None of that makes things true. I can think all day long that something is the truth, but that's not what makes it true. What makes it true is the authority that we receive from God. The authority that churches should accept as the proper place of authority. First one we're going to talk about is the words of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus says at the beginning of what, what is commonly called the Great Commission, uh, the, the, the marching orders given to, to His people, He says in verse 18, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. When we look for authority, we need to look no further 
as starting off and as, as we begin looking for what is right and what is wrong, well, how do we make decisions based upon living a life that is pleasing to God? We start with Jesus because he proclaims to us, I have all authority both in heaven and on earth. In verse 19 to 20, he expects all things done whatsoever that he commands. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to preserve all that I commanded you. Ephesians 5, verses 23 and 24 goes on to share, share with us his position over the church. Again, it is a position of authority. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, <clears throat> verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body, but the church is subject to Christ. So also the wife ought to be to her husbands and everything. So we see that God has set Jesus in a place of authority. All authority has been given to him. And when it comes to the church and we say, well, where does our authority derive from? It derives from the head. It derives from, from, from the ultimate seat of authority that we find in Christ. As the body of Christ, we submit to our head and to the words that he has taught us. But we also see that we derive authority from his apostles as well. In John chapter 13, we remember that all things, all authority was given to Jesus. Listen to his words in John chapter 13 and verse 20. John 13 verse 20, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. To receive Christ, we have to receive those who he sent. Those who were sent to, to, to spread his gospel. Those who were sent to continue revealing the message that he had started and explaining God to the world. That was his apostles. Jesus sent his apostles into the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says that they were his ambassadors. Therefore we, uh, Paul is saying, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. To ensure reliability, Jesus promised things. So you could, you could be certain that these apostles came from him. In John chapter 14, verse 26, he promised the Holy Spirit would, be, would, would, uh, would accompany them. John 14, verse 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you said this as he was speaking to his apostles. In, in chapter 16, verses 12 through 13, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The apostles wrote, as we've already talked about in Ephesians 3, they wrote so that we could have understanding. They wrote so that the mystery that was revealed to them through the Holy Spirit was available to us. And it wasn't something that we needed more people to come and to explain. Paul, John, uh, excuse me, Paul said to those Ephesians, when you read what I have recorded for you, you can understand the mystery of Christ. They wrote their epistles that we might always be reminded. Look over in 2 Peter 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 says, Therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present, uh, present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this, in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. They recorded these things. They wrote them down so we could understand Christ and so that we could be reminded continually of His words and of His authority. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, goes on to say that the things that they wrote, 
These, com- these things, these writings, they were the commandments of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37 It says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you, things which Paul was writing then, these are the commandments, these are the Lord's commandments. They received their word. They received their word as the word of God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 tells us. And so the early church, the early church looked at the apostles. And they listened to the things they said and they continued in them steadfastly. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 tells us. They continued in them daily. This was a, a huge part of the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to prayer. The true local church belonging to Christ, His body, His bride, Whatever name you want to, to slap on it that, say, that, is, that is scripturally authorized, that says this is the thing, this is the entity which Christ died for, which Christ brought in to the world to create His kingdom, to create a place for saved saints. Any true body of Christ respects the doctrine that He give, gave to His apostles to preach to the world as an authoritative place to discern truth from error, discern right from wrong. And then finally, we also have the faith revealed once for all. Jude chapter 3, this is from the, the, the New Living Translation, it says the faith or doctrine of Christ was delivered once for all time. The apostles didn't hesitate. When they, when they proclaimed the whole counsel of God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul says that, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul says that, saying, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God to the, the Ephesian elders. They weren't afraid to proclaim everything that God's counsel has, has for, the, for the people. They proclaimed all things in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. All things proclaiming to or pertaining to life and to godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 reminds us that scriptures were providing to make everyone whole, to make everyone complete, to make everyone lacking in nothing and mature. The apostles viewed what they had as as the Bible, they viewed their, their words and the early church viewed their doctrine as authoritative, as, as something that is sufficient. Maybe we should say all sufficient. They didn't need somebody else to come and to guide them and to say these are the things that God expects you to do because they had it. They had everything they needed to be complete through the teachings of the apostles, and through the words of Christ. Now, I was asked once by a man, after, after discussing these very similar things, he said, are you, are you trying to tell me that there's, there's no place else I can go except for the church of Christ? He said, are you trying to tell me that if I go somewhere else, if I go to another denomination, that I'm going to hell? Are you trying to tell me that, that my friends and my family members from, from the, the, the Catholic church and from the Baptist church and from the Methodist church, are you trying to tell me that these people are going to die and are going to go to hell? I want to say this right now. And I, 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 think, this should, I think this should be enough. It has never been my burden and it has never been my right to declare judgment upon any other man in the state of their eternal affairs. That is not something that a single man on this earth has ever been given privilege to. To judge, you are going to heaven. You are going to hell. Save one. That has been Jesus Christ. That is His place. That is His role. 
That is not something that we should ever desire to try to attain, to try to, to rise up to. But having said that, what I am saying, what I am saying without, without any hesitation, is that when we choose what church we are going to be a part of, or when a church is deciding what sort of works are we going to do, Or when an individual is deciding, how am I going to live my life? What are the things that I'm going to do? I need, you need, we all need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, by what authority do I do these things? By what authority are the things that this church is doing? By what authority does the world do its things? Is it from heaven or is it from men? Do we have that authority? If it is not from heaven, it is not something that we need to be a part of. If it is not from heaven, it is something that we need to to steer clear from. We need to recognize people who live their lives under the authority of men, under the authority of things which pertain to their feelings, which pertain to their conscience, which pertain to majority rule. We need to look at people in that state, and we don't need to look at them as our enemy, but we do need to recognize that there is an authority that is far more standard than that which we just, man has dreamed up. Things that man has decided, these things will be good and these things will be bad. And we need to find that authority. It is not hidden. It is not far from us. It is right here. And when we have that authority, we need to hold to it. We need to not let go. Because the only proper authority in religion is that which comes from Jesus as the head of the church, that which comes through his inspired apostles and the doctrine that they taught, that is which preserved for us in the New Testament. All other authority in religion either comes from a misapplication of the scriptures or it comes from uninspired men and women who, who, who despite their best interests, they have usurped the authority. They have went beyond what God has said is right and wrong. Whenever we find a challenge, whenever we are faced with with difficult things, and we look back and we say, where is the authority? What we always must be willing to do is to confront that challenge by looking at the words of Christ, by observing the things that He has said. It's not coming up with with some new doctrine, not twisting things. Just look at God's Word and say, what do you desire of your people? That's what I will do. That's what I will serve. Look at the things that He commanded. Look at the writings of His apostles, and I must be determined to continue steadfastly in that doctrine. Now, just as the church must gain its authority, go ahead and open up your songbooks. Number 498. Just as the church must gain its authority from the inspired word of God, we must receive our salvation based upon that same authority. I don't think, I don't think Joe could have picked a better song to go at the end of this lesson. Where he leads, I will follow. It's his authority that we are following. And whenever we look to our salvation, we have to recognize that God's the the giver of that salvation. And so it is only upon His Word that we can claim uh, to be saved. Now some churches claim salvation through, through faith alone. They claim that as long as you believe in, in, in God, as long as you believe in Jesus, then you are saved. Some say that all you have to do is feel it. I remember having a conversation with a young lady one time who said, I never... I never responded. I never went, went forward because the, the church I was at just kept telling me, you'll know when you're saved. You'll feel it. She said, I, I never felt that. Others say, then just recite a prayer. Others say, just tell Jesus, just tell God you are ready to be saved and you will be saved. Well, let's ask this question. What does the Bible say? What does God's word say about salvation? And let's determine to know that. And once knowing that, let's hold fast. Let's be steadfast to his word. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, Go into all the world, preach to every creature. Why? 
Why would Jesus tell them to preach to all mankind? Why take this message to everybody? Romans 10, 17 can help us understand that. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to have heard God's saving message, the gospel of Christ. We have to have heard that. And yes, you have to believe it. Mark 16, 16, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who disbelieves shall be condemned. You have to believe what is said. If you don't believe it, there is no hope. There is nothing there to, to, to prompt you to even obey anything else that he has said. But having heard the gospel and having believed what God requires from you, read passages like Acts 17 and verse 30, which says God commands all men everywhere to repent. He doesn't expect us to just continue walking in our sinful life, but to turn from sin and to turn to his righteousness. Romans 10.10 goes on to say that with a heart one believes uh, unto righteousness, but with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So Romans 10.10 goes on to add to that, that if we, if we must hear God's word, we must believe it, we must change our lives, we must also confess. We must confess that belief in him. But along with hearing, and along with believing, and along with repenting and confessing, 1 Peter 3.21 tells us, Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's Word tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Baptism washes away sins. We want to be free from the, that, that burden of weight that is on, our, in, on us, that, that burden and sin. Baptism is what takes that, that away. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 27, it goes on to tell us baptism is what transfers us into the kingdom of Christ. Baptism is what puts us into Christ. That's what God's word has to say about salvation. So the question really is for us, how do we want to respond? He is leading. Will we follow as we sing this song, as we get ready to, to, to offer up this, this moment of, of invitation, note the invitation offered is not the Lake Street Church of Christ's invitation. It is God's invitation to view His Word as authoritative and to follow. If we can assist you with that this morning, in, in becoming a child of God and coming to Him in obedience to be washed of your sins, to, to, to repent and to turn from a, a life of sin to a life of of obedience and following God. We long to assist with that. If that doesn't describe you this morning, though, maybe, maybe you're someone who's already made those steps, but you know that your life hasn't been truly committed to following Him. You have done things which you know that are wrong, and you need to offer, or have the prayers of the saints, or you would request that, that we just listen as you, as you confess. We stand ready. What you find here amongst you in this family is just that, a family of loving people. So I encourage you, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.